We're continuing in Gospel of John. We are uh, at another <laughs> beautiful passage uh, that has been uh, that has made my week just full of meditation on Jesus' beauty, and I hope we'll show you the same. Could I ask you to stand one more time as we, out of respect for God's word? The Bible says that faith comes from the word of Christ, or faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Let us all listen intently together at the inerrant word of God. This is the Gospel of John, starting at verse, uh, at chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what it teaches us, Lord. We are, as people, so focused on outward appearances. We are so focused on making ourselves look good to the world, and that transfers right into Christianity, Lord, and and into religion in general. And So, Father, we pray that you would show us through this text the difference between appearing to be religious and a true devotion to Jesus, and that through it, Lord, we might seek your face and that you might be with us in a special way today. Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So it's getting real close to showtime here in the Gospel of John. John. The first 12 chapters cover the, the ministry of Jesus. And at the end, when we get to the end of the 12th chapter here, when we start chapter 13... We're about 24 hours away from his death. And so these are the very final days of Jesus. And this picture, while I was reading this, it's this, this entrance where the introduction here is talking about all the people in Jerusalem. It reminded me of like the anticipation 
or excitement that precedes a big sporting event. Maybe like the World Series that we just saw on TV where everybody is, there's this electric charge of anticipation in the air of who's going to win. On the one side, there's the prophet that raises people from the dead. And on the other side, there's the religious establishment and the government that's put word out that they want to arrest him and kill him. And so there's this, in Jerusalem, as they're preparing for the Passover, as they're preparing for the holiest day of the year, there's a picture of all the Jerusalemites going about their business as usual, purifying themselves, which is really code for getting away from the Gentiles for seven days so they can be pure for the festivities. They're in Jerusalem purifying themselves so that they can potentially watch the authorities murder this innocent man. And so it's business as usual in Jerusalem. Detachment. Uh, they, have, they, are, they are completely unaware of the, the, the magnitude of the events that are surrounding them. And they are looking forward to see if there's going to be a train wreck. And everybody loves a train wreck, right? So they are waiting for a train wreck with religious detachment. They're going about the business of purifying themselves in the way of the Jews, having no understanding that all of that is about to be put to a stop. And so that's the scene, that's the setting of what's happening here in and around this little house at Bethany. And so the big idea of this passage, the thesis, the one thing that John wants us to know more than anything else is this. That the outward appearance of religion can hide many things, but a heart devoted to Christ reveals a deep gratitude for salvation. That an outward appearance of religion can hide many things, but a heart devoted to Christ reveals a deep gratitude for salvation. We'll take that one little piece at a time. First point. First point is that an outward appearance of religion can hide many things. Look at verse 4. Look at verse chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. We're going to go a little bit backwards and start with the end. But Judas Iscariot, one of the, his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. There's this awful story about the Beatles when they were um, at the peak of their careers in English. They got turned on to the, to the Maharishi, an, uh, an Indian holy man means great seer. I don't know if anybody is here. Some of you are old enough to remember the, the Beatles and the Maharishi. And they, so they got turned on to this guy and it was like, man, they were, they were done with Western religion and all its trappings. And here was the Maharishi and he looked holy. I mean, he was, he had dreadlocks and he was, you know, he, he had incense and ointment and he meditated 27 hours a day, and he had disciples, and he had all these outward appearances of holiness, and they were like, this is it. Finally, true holiness has reached the western coast. And then 
they were with him and they went on a retreat with him and they slowly started leaving the retreat center because all, after a while it became apparent that the Maharishi one was jealous of John Lennon and his fame. He had a thing for cash and he also happened to have a thing for Mia Farrow who happened to be there with him. And so at the end of the day, it just turned out that the Maharishi was just a dirty old man like everybody else, you know? And so they were disillusioned by him. And throughout the whole Gospel of John, we've been, you know, we've been presented with this religious elite, the ruling elite, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and, and Jesus has just been exposing them over and over and over again. You guys are just all show. That's all you do. It's just, it's just all for show. You're just out looking religious so that people will respect you, and it's really just all about you. But inside, Jesus says, inside their hearts, their hearts are corrupt. He says in this you know, amazing passage in one of the other Gospels that they're like whitewashed tombs inside holding dead men's bones, meaning they look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're corrupt and dead and foul-smelling, rotting corpses. And now John is going to show us, he's going to give us a look inside of Judas's heart. Judas, it turns out, that his outward concern for the poor is really just a cover story for his own greed. That's what he's all about, right? And that's nothing new. I mean, that's like a new story. The idea that the poor are used as a tool for the rich to gain power is a story as old as the hills, right? You know, when we, we were in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes that we were going through on our first Sundays, we did a sermon a while ago called War of the Oppressors. And one of the, you know, the points that the, that the prophet or the preacher from the book of Ecclesiastes brings out is that this has always been the case. The oppressed, the oppressed fight to be the oppressors and then the oppressors fight with each other for power and they use the poor to do so. And at the end of the day, the poor are just left right where they're at once the people get what they want and they get in power. I mean, that's an old, old story. It's, it's a sad story. It's a heartbreaking story because the poor remain unhelped and the powerful get what they want. Um, but it's even sadder when the same thing happens in a Christian context, when the same thing happens in the church. You know, and I'm not just singling out the grossest uh, examples of this, right? I mean, there are, you know, certain, you know, we could point out certain people that are obviously using Christianity just to get rich, right? And, um, but it's pervasive. It's not just the worst cases. There, it, the church has always been infiltrated by evil men, and sometimes those evil men have a desire for money more than they do for Jesus. Look at, this is what, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some i.e. Judas, have wandered away from the faith. 
And you could almost, you know, you could take that at face value, money, but you could also put just about anything else in the place of that. Anything else you could place that the love of blank, if it's over and above or excluding to a devotion to Jesus, is going to end up in the same place because none of those things have the power to be God, you know? And um, the bummer is, that here is Judas, his heart is corrupt, he loves money more than he loves Jesus, and he's about to do some fantastic damage in church, right? And throughout the history of the church, there have been men who have marshaled the church as a means for their own gain, whether it's money or whether it's fame or whether it's political power or whatever you may, whatever it might be, all of those things, people have harnessed for their own personal selfish gain. And, you know, it's no different now than it ever was, right? So, here's the thing. When that kind of thing happens in the name of the church, what it means is that they all, everybody who's not a Christian looks at that happening and they think, for all intents and purposes, that that is the church, they don't really have any real way to separate those two things. If someone says that they're acting in the name of the church or that they're a Christian, they're acting in this way, and then they use that to, uh, for selfish game or for oppression or for anything along those lines, the rest of the world looks at that and they think that is the church. That's what the church is all about. So the takeaway from that for us is that when we see that happening, especially when it is done in the name of the church, even if it's just seen by the world as being done in the name of the church, we have an extra obligation to reach out and to protect and to uphold the oppressed and to protect people from that kind of a thing. It is especially, especially important that we remember that, that we stand with Jesus above and beyond anything else. We stand with Jesus and what Jesus stands for. And Jesus stands for justice and for mercy in the world. And so as Christians, we, when, when the world perceives the church is engaged in some sort of oppressive behavior, it's on us to especially be the first ones in line to fight that. The reason why... Um, Judas is so angry with Mary, you see he's angry with her for busting open this bottle of perfume, is that she has just exposed his heart to himself. And he overflows with anger, right? What happens when fake piety meets real devotion to Jesus. You get that weird paranoid response where you think everybody else knows, and it just overflows out of his heart. So she sees him break open this bottle, and he he erupts in anger at her in this false and fake piety. Um, and it's Jesus' response is f- to him is, 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 to, is to defend her, but to say, he says, leave her alone, let her do this, because the poor you have with you always. In one of the other Gospels, it expands on that and says, you will have the rest of your life. Essentially, it, will say, it says you have the rest of your life to serve the poor, but you don't always have me, meaning the incarnation of God is not always with you. This is a specific point. And so what he's doing, he's calling, G- he's calling Judas out 
on his false piety. He's calling Judas out on his false religion. He's saying, this isn't about that bottle. This is more about the fact, this is more about you. You have the rest of your life to go and serve the poor, Judas, if you really care about the poor, if that's what you really want to do. In other words, he's calling him out saying, you're not doing that, are you? Nor do you have any intention of doing that. So this isn't really about the poor. This is about an excuse for you to look holy in public and kind of sidestep the fact that you have a personal responsibility to help the poor. And so his answer to him, his answer, Jesus answers directly this false religiosity by saying, no, it's far easier to criticize than it is to make time to actually help. And he takes his excuse away and makes it personal. You know, but the big problem, here's the big problem. The big problem behind Judas. What's really going on with him is that Judas thinks that Jesus owes him something. You know, he's probably joined this band because he thinks that Jesus is going to be the king of Israel, which means political power, and he's going to be put into his cabinet when he rises to power. And, you know, he starts to figure out slowly but surely that that's not the plan. The plan is suffering and death and a supernatural kingdom. He doesn't have any desire to do that. He's not a regenerate man. That doesn't have no promise for him. And so... He, he believes that Jesus owes him something. And that, that alone is the telltale sign of a diseased heart, of a heart that is, is in, in trouble. I mean, there is, in most counseling situations I'm in, if we bear it down to the very bottom cause, the root cause behind the trouble that's happening, there's a belief in the core of the heart that Jesus owes that person something that he has not fulfilled or that he hasn't come through on. And that then produces a lot of times depression, anxiety. Now, that's not the only reason why people have depression or anxiety. Disclaimer, there are very often medical reasons for that. But there are often also reasons for depression and anxiety that are behind the fact that people believe that Jesus owes them something and he hasn't come through on it. You feeling that? <laughs> you know, I guarantee that he felt justified in stealing from that money bag thinking that he worked hard for the group. And... Uh, Probably didn't steal all of it, you know. He couldn't get away with stealing all of it, but he probably could steal some of it, you know, maybe 10% or so. And isn't it interesting that 10% of 300 denarii or 300 silver pieces is 30 silver pieces. And the very next thing he did when he was denied the money that he thought he should have got that Jesus owed him to go into that basket so that he could steal some of it was he left and he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so the principle, the big principle behind this is that when we start thinking that Jesus owes us, we will sell him out for something else, guaranteed. It'll happen every time. 
And when that happens, when we sell Jesus out for something else, that something else doesn't have the power to come through, and it will end in depression. It will end in anxiety. It will end in unfulfillment, whatever that thing happens to be. And the something else that Judas chose ended in him killing himself. It ended in suicide. So Judas had one position. Jesus owes me something. The only other position to that, the other position or the opposite side of that, is that I owe everything to Jesus. And that's what Mary is all about. She is a picture of this kind of heart devotion to Christ. So point one, an outward appearance of religion can hide many things. Point two, a heart devoted to Christ. Look at John 12, 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The, uh, the Babylon Bee, our trusted source for Christian satire, just came out with an article that the hymnals are being updated to include uh, new songs, I Surrender Some, along with How Great I Art, <laughs> and other uh, new songs. Now it says, now, they said, now Christians can sincerely belt out the lines like, some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I conditionally give without worrying if their hearts really line up with the words. (laughs) That's not Mary's song. That's not Mary's song. You know, there's a a pastor who um, put out a video series, and he talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he he says, you you know, we believe that the veneration of Mary has gone too far, but a real admiration for Mary is a good thing, it's a beautiful thing and that he wants his daughters to grow up to be like Mary. And I was always struck by that. I mean, I thought, that's a great thing. Um, you know, Mary, is a, there's a special place. There is a special place for Mary in church history. She was what theologians call the Theotokos, which is God-bearer. She literally had God in her womb and delivered God into the world. And so Mary is very much a, a one-time, a very special thing person in the church, and the admiration for her is a very special thing. But Mary Bethany, if I think about people in the Bible that I would want my daughters to be like, I think about Mary Bethany. I mean, she's a sinner. She knows she's a sinner, but she has a devotion for Christ that's almost unparalleled in the Bible. I want my daughters to be like Mary of Bethany. There's a commentator, Richard Phillips. He gave four things about the devotion that Mary has for Jesus. I've embellished a little, but let me just share those with you. The first is that Mary's devotion was courageous. Remember, um, they're, having, they're having this dinner for, for Jesus at their home. Remember, Bethany is less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and the government has just put out warning that anybody who knows where Jesus is needs to turn him in so that he can be arrested. And you can guarantee that the penalty for not doing that would have been steep. And so here, 
Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're probably their father, Simon, in their own house are having this party, this dinner for Jesus, honoring Jesus in the midst of this intense political search for him. Her devotion to Jesus was more important to her than her personal safety. The second thing is that Mary's devotion was costly. There's a lot we don't know about this story. We don't know if this family was wealthy or if they were poor. We don't know if they were middle class. They had a house. I mean, there's certain things we can speculate, but what we do know is how much this perfume costs. You got, does anybody know when they say this thing costs 300 denarii? Do you understand what that means? 300 denarii is about a year's wages. What do you make in a year? Think about that. Now, it's a laborer's wages. It's hard to put an exact amount on it, about how much that would be. But, you know, dollar for dollar, buying power in our economy, what they could have sold it for to get, no less than $24,000. Man, $24,000. Can you imagine that? How many of you would take your, a year's salary and buy a gift for your friend or your pastor? Amen. Or the church? <laughs> um, you know what the point is? It was probably the best, most valuable thing she had. Even if they were wealthy, that was an extravagant thing. Maybe it was something that had been passed down for generations. Maybe they were not wealthy. Maybe they pooled their money to buy this. I mean, the whole family is probably together on this, and Mary's the one who's delivering it. But whatever it was, her devotion to Jesus was not limited by anything. It was, without question, she gave Jesus the best, most valuable thing she had without even thinking about it. Because from her perspective, from her perspective, she understood that what she had in Jesus was so great that any earthly thing that she had was, was incomparable to that. Just wasn't as valuable next to what she knew she had in Christ. Third thing, let me stick with three things, is that Mary's devotion was conspicuous. In other words, there was no way to avoid it. John puts this line at the end of that, the, the, that scene, this descriptive line. He says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Whenever these biblical writers do something like that, there's purpose behind it. They're not just telling us about a house filling with this beautiful smell of this, this nard oil. I bought a 10 milliliter bottle of it on Amazon just to smell it this week. It was, you know, it's still $25,000 for a pound probably. It's not cheap, but it, it is from a, a, the root of a plant that grows in the Himalaya mountains only. And so that would have been extracted and processed in India in the Himalayan mountains and come across the Roman roads somehow or outside the Roman territory into the Roman territory for Jesus 
for, for Mary and Martha and their family to have this. Um, and it smells beautiful. It's amazing. And John describes this picture, the fragrance just filling the whole house. One of the commentators made this beautiful observation that with a pound of oil on his head and his feet, it probably, the beauty of that smell probably stuck with Jesus throughout the entirety of his suffering and crucifixion and death. And it was stuck on her hair in this offering that she gave him. She was tied to him in this way by smell. And the, the smell just wafted throughout the whole house. This fragrance associated with Jesus and what he was about to do. John's trying to teach us something here. He's trying to, I think, show us. And I mean, that really happened, but he's bringing it out to show us that the fragrance of Jesus is pervasive. That when devotion, when that type of devotion, that that level of heart devotion goes out into the world, it fills wherever it's at and it's un mistakable, and it's unavoidable. You see it, and you can't ignore it. And that brings to mind the verse from Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says, that for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Judas is in the room. To one of fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. John is bringing up this picture of the fragrance permeating everything in the house as this beautiful fragrance of life to those who are in Jesus. And, and that same beauty of smell to Judas being the stench of death because his heart knows what he's going to do. You know, John Piper says that Mary's devotion to Jesus has risen to the level of his value. I don't know if that's an overstatement or not. The value of Jesus is incalculable. There's no amount of devotion that we could conjure up that would rise to the level of the value of Christ. But at least we can say that Mary's level of devotion rose to a high level of what it should be for a Christian, knowing who Jesus is. She didn't seem to be as distracted by the things of the world that was distracting everybody else, you know? I mean, she seemed to be devoted to Jesus at a higher level even than her sister Martha, right? How did she, you know, how did she get to the point where she was not distracted so much by the snares of the world around her? Mary is always portrayed at Jesus' feet, taking in his words. You know, everybody, Judas is an awful example of this, right? His heart is so, his heart is so focused on money, on the snare of money, that everything that happens, he's triggered by that, and everything that happens has to do with money, and he's trying to cover it up. We too, we tend to be distracted by the, the snares, the enticements, the temptations of the world. And so when we listen to the word, when we listen to Jesus speaking, our brains have a tendency to kind of reinterpret a little bit on the fly to fit a little better with what we want 
rather than what it is he's actually saying. But Mary doesn't do that. Mary's devotion doesn't do that. She's always portrayed as sitting at Jesus' feet, intently listening to what he says and humbly submitting herself to what he's saying. How do I know that? I know that because Mary knows something about Jesus that not even his closest disciples understand. She knows that Jesus is about to die. She knows that he's about to die for her. The third point. A heart devoted to Christ reveals a deep gratitude for salvation. Point one, an outward appearance of religion can hide many things, including an evil, greedy heart. But a heart devoted to Christ, like Mary's, reveals, point three, a deep gratitude for salvation. Look at verse seven. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, meaning the oil. You know, one of the remarkable features of the Gospels, I've been reading through the Gospels this last couple of weeks, and one of the remarkable features of it is that after, at the, there's this, the center point of the Gospel is when one of the characters comes to a recognition of who Jesus is. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. In the, in the Synoptic Gospels, it's Peter who says that. We just saw that in John's Gospel, it's Martha who makes that confession. And then from that point in the Synoptics, Jesus starts to repeatedly teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and die. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I will, be, I will be killed and God will raise me from the dead. And there's one point in the Synoptic Gospels where he says it three times in a row, over and over and over and again, and they don't get it. They're clueless. There's even one line where they, they sit among themselves wondering what this figure of speech must mean, right? Because they're distorting real time. It can't mean you're going to die because we're going to rule Jerusalem, right? You've come to restore the glory to Israel. You've come to restore our glory. You've come to give us political power so we can rule the world and make everybody else do what we want. Right? So this must be a figure of speech. (laughs) He must be symbolically dying and resurrecting into the power of the kingship of Israel. On the fly, they're distorting these things, but not Mary. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate in the ESV. You know, what does it say? It says, Let her, it says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. If you look at, there's a little number, if you look in your Bibles, that directs you to the apparatus, which are the other, the, the readings on the bottom of the page where there's an alternate possible reading. And that one says in the ESV, it gets it very close. It says, leave her alone. She intends to keep it for the day of my burial. A good translation, I believe, for this would be something like, the meaning of that translation would be something like, the reason she didn't sell it and give it to the poor Judas was so that she would have it for, literal translation, the day of the preparation of my burial. In other words, the day to prepare my body, getting it ready for burial. In other words, he's saying, the 
reason, she didn't sell it because she knew this day was coming. She wanted to keep it so that she could do this beautiful thing for me. Which means that out of everybody, Mary got it. She wasn't thinking symbolically. She wasn't thinking when Jesus was sitting there teaching and she was at his feet and he was saying, I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles. I'm going to be killed then I'm going to resurrect from the dead. She wasn't thinking to herself, well, how does that fit in with my schemes of personal power? She was thinking to herself, the Lord's going to die, and then he's going to resurrect from the dead. She got it. Jesus was going to die. You know, this story is in all the Gospels, and there, there's little variations in between them. In Luke's gospel, they're at Simon's house. And a woman comes in and cries on Jesus' feet and then wipes her feet with her hair. In, in Mark's gospel, the woman comes in and anoints Jesus' head. In John's gospel, the woman comes in and anoints his feet. And I think there's, there's very good reason to believe that all of those stories and all of those gospels stem from the same account and the authors, as they often do, picked out parts of the story that were fitting their theological purpose at the time. And if that's true, that is giving us all of the stories of this incident together come together to give us this fuller picture of what's happening here. Mary comes in crying and she cries on Jesus' dirty feet, his feet that have just walked through Lord knows what, through the Jerusalem streets, washes his feet with her own tears, unbinds her hair, which is an insane thing to do for a Jewish woman. Rather than using a towel and wiping her, his feet with a towel, she uses her own hair and wipes his feet. And then she anoints him head to, to feet, the entire body, a, a, a pound of, no, it was really 12 ounces, about the size of a Coke can, full of this expensive oil. And she anointed him from head to toe, preparing for his burial. The tears. She's not crying because Jesus is going to die. How do I know that? Because her brother Lazarus is sitting right next to him. She's crying because she gets what it means What Jesus just did with Lazarus is a demonstration of what Jesus is about to do for everyone. He's going to to the cross, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. And in her devotion, she's been able to see and hear that that's happening for her. Jesus is about to die for her that his death and resurrection is the guarantee of her death and resurrection. And so her act of crying and her act of humility and her act of just giving the very best of what she had as if there was n- it was no consequence, devoting everything she had to Jesus wasn't an act of, tr- of merit to him. She wasn't trying to get him to approve of her. She wasn't trying to buy anything from him. It was just a simple act of gratitude based on what she knew 
he was about to go through for her and for all of us. So, concluding, what do we know about this? What does this teach us? It teaches us two things, a few things. There's two basic positions that we can have towards Jesus. We can have the position that he owes us something and live in, and, 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 and suffer the, the, the anger and the resentment that flows out of that. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus owes us something, it will cause us to be angry. That anger will spiral and cause us to believe that Jesus owes us even something more as things get worse, and it'll continue to spiral down and down and down until eventually, in Judah's case, it ended in suicide. The opposite of that is a heart that's set on devotion to Christ, a heart that listens to his word and has soaked it in and understands what Jesus has done for us and that devotion to Christ naturally expresses itself in service, in a heartfelt, Jesus-dedicated service. And that service then drives us into a deeper devotion to Christ and that cycle spirals up and up and up. That's sanctification. The reason the Bible, John here, the New Testament is teaching over and over and over again about this kind of devotional spiral, about this kind of devotion to Jesus. Why Jesus has commended Mary's devotion to him even over above Martha's service is because that service by itself can mask many things, right? Even in that story with Martha serving, Martha's heart was jealous because Mary wasn't helping her serve, right? Service by itself can mask a lot of things, but devotion to Christ will naturally, will supernaturally produce service that's, that's geared towards God, that's based out of a gratitude for who Jesus is. It's a kind of service that can serve without burning out because the fuel is everlasting. It's not based on who you are, what you've got. It's based on who Jesus is and what he's given us. So if we can get this right, if we can get, the reason the Bible constantly just focuses us on devotion to Jesus, the reason why we preach sermons that are focused on Jesus and how beautiful he is, it's a, It's a way of acting out this principle. If we can get this right, devotion to Christ, everything else will fall into place for us. Our service will fall into place. Our work for the poor will fall into place. Our mercy will fall into place. Justice that we should be fighting for will fall into place. The church's struggle with and for the oppressed will fall into place. All of it will fall into place naturally, supernaturally, and be powered by the Holy Spirit because we're not doing it to look good. We're not doing it for some alternative purpose. We're doing it because we have a deep devotion to Jesus based on the picture of who he is and what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your great blessing to us.
in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. Father, as we approach the table, as we approach the place where you come and meet us in a special way and reassure all of your promises to us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to watch our hearts, help us to watch and keep a watchful eye on those voices in our, in our head and in our hearts that are telling us that you haven't done enough, that we, that you owe us more, that we don't have enough, that we shouldn't be satisfied in you. Lord, we help, help us to hear those voices right when they start to speak up, first thing when we wake up in the morning and then all throughout the day. And we pray that you would, by your power of your spirit, enable us to say, yes, you have. You are enough. You have given us more than we could ever hope or think or dream. And the promises we have in you are greater than anything that this world has to offer. And we pray, Lord, that we would think it inconsequential to give even our most valuable possession or to give even that thing or that idol that holds so much value in our eyes out of devotion for you, knowing that you, Lord, will always, always be better than anything that we try to hold on to. And so in your good timing, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us through and through by any means necessary, no matter how bad it may hurt, so that we might have the peaceable fruit of righteousness, so that we might be devoted to you, and so that you might shine through us and bring comfort and mercy and peace and the hope of the gospel to as many people as you would allow us to present it to, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.